0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kent Tsuda, and today I'm joined by Dr. Toshihiro Higuchi from Georgetown University. And we are going to discuss Dr. Higuchi's new book, Political Fallout, Nuclear Weapons Testing and the Making of a Global Environmental Crisis, published just this month by Stanford University Press. Welcome, Dr. Higuchi, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Uh, We're very happy to have you. Um, this book, it is a history of the 1963 partial test ban treaty. Um, and Mm -hmm. that's a treaty that was initially signed by the US, USSR, and the United Kingdom. And among other things, they agreed to stop atmospheric nuclear testing, um, moving those tests underground. And it, it looks at the development of knowledge about fallout, the dissemination of that knowledge and the controversy regarding Fallout, and just before we start, Dr. Higuchi, I was hoping you could just tell us what fallout is, um, how it's generated, and and maybe after you've done that, you can tell us, you can give us a very brief account of um, the history of that of the research coming up to the period that you look at in your book. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, so radioactive fallout is a byproduct of um, nuclear explosion and basically when when we explode a nuclear weapon, um, it basically triggers um, chain reaction of a nuclear fission or a nuclear fusion basically that release enormous amount of energy. That's why a nuclear weapon is heavily destructive. But uh, this the process of producing enormous amount of energy from nuclear reactions uh, comes with a collateral process. Basically, um, the the elements produced uh, during this um, process and also the uh, uh, kind of leftover from the nuclear explosion and uh, any elements that captures, neutrons from nuclear reactions are all radioactive. And the radioactive um, means that the basically um, there is an element that disintegrates, transmutes into something else. And then in that transformation, the element emits an energy in the form of um, the various electromagnetic waves and as well as the uh, uh, electrons and then um, particles. Basically uh, this radioactivity um, is very biological harmless, ha- ha- biologically harmless, uh, sorry, <laughs> biologically harmful The uh, because the uh, radiation that penetrates into your body actually strips electrons out of your cells that actually damage or kill cells. So, radioactivity comes from nuclear reactions and then when the nuclear weapon um, explodes, uh, then actually it scatters this radioactivity uh, in large uh, areas. a small portion of it actually falls out onto the ground near uh, ground zero, um, the point of detonation, but uh, a majority of the uh, radioactivity um, got dispersed or uh, widely um, over uh, really uh, large areas in long distance and they eventually fell out, settled onto the ground. So the, uh, my book is about this global fallout um, as opposed to the local fallout that, that you might have heard before um, in relation to the uh, test sites like uh, we used to have uh, in Nevada. And also we at uh, the United States used to test nuclear weapons in, in the middle of the Pacific, like Marshall Islands and uh, also other nuclear powers like the Soviet Union and the Britain also tested their weapons in their uh, own locations. But uh, I'm interested in this global dispersion of radioactive for um, And then my question was basically why, in what way this um, global radioactive contamination really changed the way how we understood uh the uh, the environment and also human health but uh most importantly um the cold war um so that's um that's what i'm what i, what I did in my book so basically i stumbled upon this subject um as an undergrad- sorry undergraduate student uh when i was still back in japan. Um, I, I was born and I grew up in Japan, a suburb of Tokyo, until 23 years ago, old. So I spent my college years there. I don't really have any family member who was directly affected by the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, except that my parents um, actually had a wedding ceremony, in Nagasaki <laughs> uh, at one of the churches there, Catholic churches there, um, which was heavily affected by the atomic bombing. But then that ceremony, of course, happened like three decades after the bombing. So we don't really have any direct association with that tragedy. But um, I recalled in my preface to the book that the uh, um, there are, there are many cultural events and the moments that the uh, I came to learn about the tragedy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then um, my dad uh is electric engineer and he he now retires, but he went to many countries to assist uh, economic development. So that kind of a combination of um the uh my interest in international peace and security and uh, my awareness of the atomic tragedy that befell Hiroshima and Nagasaki really got me um, interested in studying uh, nuclear affairs. Um, So when I went to college, basically I approached this problem in a fairly traditional way that is um, basically as an instance of the uh, arms race and the international crisis, and then how we avoided nuclear catastrophe. Um, so at college and also even after I moved to the States, uh, United States um, as an international student uh, to pursue master's thesis, uh, I basically studied uh, nuclear weapons problem from the point of view of uh, national security and the uh, nuclear uh, disarmament uh, in a very typical sense. And then um, when I got my master's degree from the uh, State University of New York, Albany, and then I moved to Georgetown University as a PhD student, I came to learn that Um, nuclear weapons were much more than just a matter of war and peace in a typical sense. Uh, Nuclear weapons have a lasting impact on human health and the environment. And I was told at one point that almost everybody living on this planet today has really tiny, tiny portions of radioactivity that has been left by the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere up until the 1960s. Um, although the uh, France and China basically continued their atmospheric nuclear testing until 1970s and 80s, but most of the radioactivity uh, from nuclear weapons testing uh, Comes from the uh, over four hundred tests conducted by the United States, Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom, but we managed to end this environmentally and biologically harmful practice by international agreement. But still, the uh, the uh, it has a, a lasting legacy. Um, literally inscribed into our body as well as the uh, environment. So really that awareness really uh, changed the way how I understand the nuclear age and the Cold War as much more than just a um, confrontation between the two superpowers and their allies, but actually, Cold War, unlike any other wars, is a war that basically changed the the uh, material composition of the entire planet. Now, the uh, it's a whole different question whether or not that change, material change, is dangerous. That's exactly a kind of subject that that I pursue in my book. What do we mean when we say this is dangerous, this is risky? So that's um, how we came to this uh, topic.
0: So uh, I was just wondering if you could give us a, a a a sense of what the prevailing historiographical account of the Partial Test Ban Treaty was um, before your book and and how your book relates adds to it or modifies it
2: mm-hmm. so uh, the existing scholarship um, has viewed this episode of nuclear weapons testing in the atmosphere and then the eventual conclusion of the partial test fund treaty pretty much in the same ways that I just described. That is, as an instance of the nuclear arms race and then partial testament treaty as one of the first international treaties that tried to stop the dangerous spiral of the nuclear arms race. Between the Soviet Union and the United States and Britain. Um, initially, actually, that was my understanding too. And then, the Partial Testament Treaty is a landmark arms control agreement in the Cold War. It came um, in 1963, just a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis where we arguably got to the closest to the uh, uh, nuclear war. Um, but uh, if you take a close look at the text of the treaty, it talks more than just the uh, the danger of the nuclear arms race and then the uh, pledge to work for arms control and peace. It has a uh, significant environmental component in it. Namely, to put the end to the contamination of man's environment by radioactive substances. And then um, SCARAs have not really underlined the meaning of this um, statement. Uh, SCARAs have noticed that the radioactive fallout and its subsequent controversy over its alleged harm did uh, stimulate public opposition around the world to the continuous testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. So the uh, the existing studies um, have talked about this. Um, impact of contamination on public opinion but they haven't really taken a close look at the uh, the uh, the mechanism process in which the uh, material change of the planet the environment radioactively speaking um, radio, radiologically speaking uh, uh, really impacted the uh Policy making process. So what I tried to do in my book is basically to uh, unpack this black box of the process in which really um, the global dispersion of radioactive fallout eventually precipitated a very important policy change um, that led to the uh, Partial Disarmament Treaty. So I think that's. Um, that's my contribution to the scholarship.
0: So your book looks at the, the 18 years. I think it goes a little bit before that, but it mainly looks at the 18 years between the Trinity test in 1945 and the 1963 partial test ban treaty. Um, and, and during that time, as you said, the, the, those, the three nuclear powers at the time conducted 400 four hundred thirty-five tests. And one moment in the history is the nineteen fifty four Castle Bravo test. Can you tell us about that test and, and why it's important in this history? And uh, and one also talk about the so called atomic tuna controversy associated with it? Sure. sure.
2: Um, the Castle Bravo test was a US US thermonuclear weapon test conducted uh, in the uh, Marshall Islands located in the middle of the Pacific in 1954. Um, it was the uh, still the largest nuclear test conducted by the United States to this day. The uh, yield was um, estimated to be around 15 megatons. It is almost 1000 times as much as the bomb that they uh, dropped in Hiroshima. And then actually the st- uh, power of the explosion was such that the, uh, it basically um, exceeded the expectations uh, that the scientists had. So in terms of the pure technical standpoint, pure technical standpoint as a weapon, actually it was a success. Success in a sense that with the success of the Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test, now the United States was equipped with the enormous power of nuclear destruction that the Eisenhower administration at the time hoped would deter the Soviet Union and its allies from uh, embarking on um, uh, dangerous aggressions around the world. So from the point of view of nuclear deterrence, the uh, Washington actually welcomed this uh, uh, development. The problem was the explosion was such that it scattered a massive amount of radioactivity um, across, hundreds of uh square miles um over the Pacific. And then so um although the uh the 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 island where the test took place, that is uh, Bikini Atoll, uh was fairly remote island, but the uh Radioactive plume coming out of this enormous explosion uh, blanketed neighboring islands hundreds of miles away, and they exposed uh, a, a few hundred few hundred islanders to uh, varying degrees of radiation. But what the world initially did not know was that also in the path of the radioactive plume, uh, there was a Japanese small fishing boat uh, called the Lucky Dragon, which happened to be operated to catch tuna just outside of the danger zone around the uh, test site. Um, the fisherman reported the uh, like a um, descendants of like a snowflake like um, debris coming from the sky, and then soon after they felt sick, and then they decided to go back to Japan. But by the time when they got uh, they got to Japan, um, two weeks later, uh, almost all crew members were heavily sick. Uh, So that uh, broke the news about the um, the uh, radioactive fallout coming from the Castle Gravel test. And then one of the uh, crew members eventually died. And then that really shocked uh, the Japanese, but also the entire world. Um, But actually, what really um, scared people in Japan, was the uh, the tuna um, coming from the Pacific? The Lucky Dragon was the fish to catch tuna, and then uh, the uh, tuna cargo, cargo uh, was immediately impounded. But the uh, but consumers um, worried about the possible contamination of any fish coming from the Pacific Ocean, and then to really reassure, yeah, anxious consumers in Japan and also uh, in the United States, where uh, the uh, tuna um, was imported from Japan to create the uh, you know canned tuna, the Japanese government decided to uh, install the rigorous radiological inspection of tuna. Um, well, what happened was the, uh, the, uh, no one really knew um, the actual extent of radioactive contamination from the uh, test. And no one really knew to what extent uh, radioactivity in the fish could be harmful. So in my book, I I discuss this uncertainty about both the extent of contamination and its harmfulness, and then show how US and Japanese government officials and their scientific advisors tried to figure out the Radiological standards for the uh, inspection of tuna. Initially, the United States uh, basically tried to um, reassure the Japanese by saying that uh, there was no widespread contamination. And then, um, so based on that idea, the Japanese government decided to adapt the most stringent standard for the inspection to reassure the consumers. But uh, it turned out to be that the uh, um, many, you know, uh, species of fish, especially tuna, and others also coming from the mid Pacific did contain detectable amounts of radioactivity. And that exceeded the uh, inspection standards. So suddenly, the tuna that the uh, Japanese fishermen took back from the Pacific became radioactive according to the administrative standards, <laughs> which again does not necessarily mean that it was inherently or immediately dangerous. but the uh what the uh, government officials and science, scientists tried to address um was really the risk of harm not the obvious harm but the possibility of catching a serious disease like cancer or genetic defects um in the long term so the uh so they had to really figure out uh, how much reactivity uh, we should tolerate, not just biologically speaking, but the socially speaking. And then this atomic tuna, atomic bomb tuna episode really shows really uh, uncertainty, confusion, and also a lot of politics of uh, determining and changing the radiological standards uh for food and drink so that was the uh that is the story of the uh castle Bravo test and the atomic bomb tuna yeah.
0: you, your book goes into a lot of detail um and and listeners have to um read the book itself to get the full story but i was hoping that along the lines you're just describing, you could contrast the U.S. and Soviet government's development of knowledge about those risks and, and their reactions to others' developments during that period,
2: 1945 to 1963. Hmm. Right, yes. Uh, my book is international in scope. I consciously tried to Compare not just to compare and to contrast the United States, Soviet Union, and the Britain, but also to integrate um, all three countries and their allies into a one coherent story of um, international communication interactions and then maneuvering uh, basically in the Cold War. Um, so, so that's why I tell a story of not just the United States, but the Soviet Union and the Britain and Japan and other, many other countries as well. Um, when it comes to the Soviet Union, um, you know, uh, I think uh, we tend to think about the Soviet Union during the Cold War as a very closed country, hostile to the West, not too far from what kind of image we have today about North Korea. And um, we tend to think about the science in the Soviet Union as ideological and political, um, as opposed to academic freedom that the United States and the Britain guaranteed for scientific researchers. But now we know based on the recent studies about sciences during the Cold War, that the science um, during the Cold War in these superpowers um, actually was heavily under the influence of uh, national security state. So the Soviet Union was not the only country that really put science under political control. The United States and Britain in their own ways, and then more often by incentive than coercion, but nevertheless did the same thing. That means that basically to mobilize science for national security purposes. Um, So my story basically takes a step further, saying that the Cold War did not just bring about conversion, I'm sorry, the uh, convergence between the different political economic regimes. But the uh, Cold War, by producing radioactive fallout that scattered all around the world, also um, uh, brought these scientific researches in the US, Britain, and the Soviet Union into grow- greater synchronization. Uh, uh, So that means that the uh, Soviet scientists who studied radiation protection and the biological effects of radiation were acutely aware of what was going on in the world. Uh, uh, Through the uh, material of radioactive fallout that came from everywhere, not just the uh, uh, Soviet tests, but also those conducted by the United States as well. And then Soviet scientists um, established a monitoring network to closely um, the, uh, the, uh, track the development of nuclear weapons by the United States and Britain through the correction of radioactive debris coming from outside of the Soviet Union. So Soviet scientists um, knew that there was an increased amount of radioactivity around the world, Um, just like the US and the British scientists um, did. Um, What was unique about the Soviet Union was the uh, state of genetics in um, you. In order for us to really estimate the risks of radioactive fallout in small amounts on human health, we need to have uh, extensive genetic knowledge because the effects of small radiation Little radiation are not really pronounced in a very obvious macroscopic way, but rather uh, through a really um, fine but essential um, DNA and other molecular basis of life. So you have to know genetics um, to really. Start estimating the health risks of radioactive fallout in small amounts that they are, we are talking about now. Um, but the uh, during uh, in the Soviet Union, this field of knowledge was politically suppressed by a group of scientists led by the uh, Tofim Luisenko, who was. Um, Ukraine born, um, plant, plant physiologist, um, so basically at, at the beginning of this, uh, global radioactive fallout crisis, uh, many of the, uh, top Soviet scientists, uh, who subscribed to the uh Luisenko's idea that is basically um the uh the uh organism organisms can adapt themselves to a changing environment and uh, pass over the acquired traits to offspring. Um this idea really didn't really um didn't really help us understand a potentially significant and permanent damage due to exposure to radiation. Because the uh, a little bit small radiation would not be a problem if organisms could adapt to the changing radiation environment. So this idea of luisenkoism really uh, prevented Soviet scientists uh, from really understanding the potential problem of radioactive fallout uh, disseminated around the world. And then this had a political um implication because the uh the Kremlin uh desperately wanted to stop the nuclear weapons that was very costly and then Something that they knew that, that they could lose, uh, but the Kremlin could not really understand and mobilize public opinion against nuclear weapons testing because the uh, the uh, its scientific advisors could not really explain why a small amounts of radioactivity were bad. So basically the scientists in the Soviet Union, um, critical of Lysenko, seized the moment and then uh, tried to demonstrate the utility of their genetic knowledge uh, to the Kremlin through a large scale propaganda campaign in support, of the uh, nuclear weapon test ban. Um, So what my book shows about the Soviet Union and its relations with the uh, United States is that this really in the age of the uh, global radioactive contamination and then in the age of the global Cold War, the Soviet Union and its scientists were not really apart from the rest of the world. Actually, Soviet Union was pretty much in part of this um, global story. And then um, Soviet researchers really actively tried to communicate with Western counterparts um, despite all political constraints and ideological differences. And then in the end, um, Soviet scientists also played a key role in persuading the Kremlin to uh, consider a nuclear test ban. Um, So I think um, what my book is doing is basically to really
1: to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Just a follow-up question on on that point. Um, Your book is part of this um, more recent trend of questioning the, the overly simplistic binary view between the intellectual freedom of the West and the ideological control of science in the Soviet Union. But I I, I just I noticed in reading your book that when the, their, the Soviet scientific establishment wasn't monolithic and there were these dissenting voices, um, the geneticists who pointed out the, um, frankly, the stupidity of lysenkoism, <laughs> that went through the state, right? And, and so if you look at the chapters in which you're addressing uh, the West, the United States, and, and the UK for the most part. Um, there's, it seems like civil society and even individual scientists, um, they were able to present their views publicly, of course, many times against a reluctant government that maybe would have wanted to have the same ideological control that the, the Kremlin had. But there was a civil society had a role in the West that doesn't seem to, um, translate to the Soviet Union, at least, um, from my my reading of your book, I was wondering if that is right and if that, how that bears on this, um, in, in, in putting together this more complex picture of the contrast between the U.S. and Soviet Union.
2: Uh, you are, you're absolutely correct about the, uh, difference in terms of the civil society, um, and then it's, it's political consequences. Yes. Um the scientists in the United States and Britain did enjoy a much greater degree of freedom to speak up um, against the uh, dangers of radioactive fallout. So that is true. But also my book shows that uh, the debate in the public sphere uh, was not really enough. To really move the things forward, Uh, precisely because of the the uncertainty and then controversial value judgments involved in the risk assessment of radioactive fallout. So so it's not the public uh, debate uh, did raised the issue in public consciousness and then um, mobilized many people against the uh, continuation of nuclear weapons testing. But the public debate itself alone did not really put the end to the controversy. If any, actually that created the stalemate and the confusion because you have one set of state scientists who say that, that it's dangerous. You have the another set of scientists who say it's safe. I think we see this kind of a, a cacophony of the scientific voice in almost any instance uh, that involves radioactive accidents today, like uh, that happened in Fukushima, for example, you know, um, um, you know that is a pretty much product of the inherent uncertainty and also inevitability to make some certain value judgments uh, when it comes to a small doses of radiation. Because the kind of risk that we are talking about uh, is not the obvious immediate and the present danger to human body, but potential long-term damage, which can be expressed only uh, in terms of probabilistic um, probabilities, sorry, probabilities. So anyway, um, so that means that the, uh, the existence of civil society is crucial for the opening or reopening of the politics of risk and it definitely helped us to put into question a kind of safety claim made by the government authorities that the uh, radioactive fallout scattered around the around the world was safe. What do we mean by saying it's safe? But that conversation did not really bring the uh, disc- uh, controversy to the end. So the, my book also shows that the uh, the role of organized expertise that is um, scientific committees assembled to uh, study the question and then uh, compile uh, authoritative definitive account of the uh, problems involved. So in that sense, um, the, uh, the United States and the Britain were not the only countries that really contributed to the transformation of the understanding through scientific critics. Actually, Soviet scientists and the Japanese scientists for that matter also made significant contributions to really um, scientific reviews uh, conducted by the United Nations and the other related bodies. Um, so I think we need to look at both open debate and then uh, civil discourses, but also we need to um, take a close look at the uh, um, what scientific committees, experts, were, uh, are discussing behind the uh, closed doors? I think because the uh, the statements coming from these scientific bodies uh, tend to be taken as definitive and authoritative by not just the government officials but also general public. So the, uh, we we tend to listen to um, like a prestigious scientific body uh, uh, articulating its uh, view about the uh, problems like uh, climate change and others, uh, despite the uh, ongoing controversy, right? So I think uh, we need to take a look at both processes, both open and closed to really understand why our understanding of radioactive fallout changed over time and the how that change uh, affected the policymaking process toward the uh,
0: end of atmospheric nuclear testing. Yeah. One one thread that runs through the book is the involvement of non or at the time non nuclear powers in this debate about fallout and its. Um, acceptable risks from fallout. Um, Could you tell us about the role that um, such non-nuclear powers, Japan, India, Canada, I think some of the Scandinavian countries feature in the book as well, how they played into this history?
2: Um, They played a really important role uh, in many ways. Um, Well, the uh, well, after all you know Japan was one of the first countries that really faced uh this global environmental crisis in the form of the atomic bomb tuna uh which had been there but up until then up until nineteen fifty four at the time of the castle bravo test uh, the um the world did had not really noticed. So um, so in that sense, non-nuclear countries were at the forefront of facing this uh, environmental crisis. Uh, Especially um, in relation to the Cold War. Um, My book shows that What ultimately led the many government officials in the nuclear powers to see a certain levels of radioactivity acceptable was the national
0: security point of view.
2: Um, The non-nuclear powers did not necessarily share that interest, national security aspect. Um, many of these countries were indeed U.S. allies. Japan, Norway, and uh, other Canada and other countries. But they did not necessarily agree with the United States that the uh, radioactive contamination was worth accepting or at least tolerating in exchange for the, uh, um, in exchange for um, benefits from the development of nuclear weapons through weapons testing, um, so there was a fundamental disagreement over how to manage national security during the Cold War, over especially over nuclear weapons. Um, also, my book. Talks about the emergence of the idea, so-called innocent bystanders. And this idea of innocent bystanders it was really key um, because that really shows that um, there are many people in the world as well as in the distant future. Children and the children's children in the deep future, who may not necessarily consent to being exposed to radiation. So um, many non-nuclear powers thought themselves presented themselves as part of this community of innocent bystanders, as uh, basically from the Cold War and the nuclear race, I think this idea was really necessary to challenge the idea of acceptable risk because acceptable risk um, meant that you accept a certain degree of risk in exchange for a certain benefit. And then that, that logic made sense for the United States, Soviet Union, and Britain engaged in the uh, fierce Cold War. The problem was like uh, India and um, many other countries did not necessarily really really see the world in that way. And then the, uh, so that's why the uh, um, non-nuclear powers really, forced us to think outside the box of the Cold War, basically. That actually, consciously or unconsciously went into the risk analysis and then the uh, justifications uh, for radiation radiation exposure. So I think, yes, the uh, um, countries without nuclear weapons played a really key role in changing the ways that we understood the implications of
0: radioactive, radioactive contamination. You, you argue that the partial test ban treaty ironically made the, it didn't slow the nuclear arms race down at all, Mm -hmm. but it made it sustainable. And I was wondering in what sense Mm -hmm. um, did the nuclear arms race in the Cold War generally becomes sustainable? What, what became sustainable?
2: Right. So uh, basically, my argument is that the uh, partial test treaty did help reduce uh, radioactive fallout in the biosphere, uh, but it did not really stop the nuclear arms race. Um, Partial Testament Treaty allowed the uh, treaty parties, the United States, Britain, and Soviet Union, to continuously conduct tests deep underground in such ways not to contaminate uh, the environment uh, beyond outside of the uh, national borders. Um, so that meant that the, uh, the United States and Soviet Union basically decided to continue. The development of their nuclear weapons uh, underground, uh, without letting uh, radioactive fallout uh, outside of the uh, outside of the shafts. Although there are many actually accidents uh, um, that really led to the uh, venting of radioactive uh, gases out of the uh, tunnels. But nevertheless, overall uh, from the global health point of view, the uh underground testing did uh greatly mitigate the potential uh health impact. So um so in that sense um Partial test on treaty uh, made the subsequent nuclear arms race more environmentally sustainable. Um, obviously, um, you may notice a little bit irony in it, <laughs> the, uh, because obviously the nuclear arms race was a very dangerous way to sustain peace. So, the uh, whether or not it, it was a, a really sustainable solution. For international peace was really uh, uh, a burning question, uh, even at that time. But nevertheless, it was a material fact that the uh, the end of atmospheric nuclear testing did remove the the um, most, not all, but uh, most of the uh, biological and the environmental effects of nuclear explosions uh, from the biosphere. Now, that sustainability actually also concealed other environmental and uh, biological effects of the nuclear weapons enterprise as a whole. The uh, United States and the Soviet Union continuously mined uranium, processed uranium, which is very toxic in the process. And then manufactured warheads, deployed them, and they eventually try to uh, find a place to depose of the uh, uh, nuclear materials, like a nuclear waste. Now this entire process is uh, really dangerous. And then, um, but the, uh, by stopping nuclear testing in the atmosphere, basically the partial testman treaty uh, deprived this whole process of visibility. So that means that the, uh, although it is true that the uh, treaty did remove a chunk of radioactivity arised, uh, arising from this process in terms of the radioactive fallout from nuclear explosion, but it also permitted um, the uh, continuation of the nuclear weapons development in many ways. And then each activity still has um, a tremendous environmental and a biological impact. So um, me saying that the, this uh, treaty made the uh, arms race uh, sustainable has a double meaning. <laughs> meaning that sustainable in terms of the, uh, the reduction of fallout emissions, which is environmentally sustainable but also sustainable in a sense that the, uh, it allowed arms race to go without uh, being um, under scrutiny by the public uh, the general public about the uh, its biological and environmental costs
0: so regarding that first um, form of sustainability i wonder whether i wonder whether that's um, if the net environmental effect of the partial test ban treaty is in fact sustainable if if it did in fact allow for the acceleration of the nuclear arms race and given the the actual cost Harms that have gone to the environment from the continuation of that arms race plus the risk of um, huge environmental catastrophic risks that come from that arms race Um, I wonder if the net effect in fact is if if it was an improvement at all That's really a really interesting question and
2: then I agree that Partial Testament Treaty might have um, made the the nuclear, yeah, the the development of nuclear weapons even more uh, deadly in its total magnitude. Um, We continuously piled up more and more nuclear weapons. We ended up having tens of thousands of nuclear warheads in the middle of the Cold War around 60s and 70s. Um, so in that sense, yes, the, uh, the Partial Testament Treaty, which came in 1963, earlier part of the Cold War, actually might have even permitted the uh, continuous increase of the overall nuclear harm um both real and the potential uh in the long run that that that's very um interesting way to think about this uh whole episode uh, but i would say um the partial participant treaty also did help us to really to uh Uh, to basically um, address the problem of nuclear arms race uh, more holistically. So that means that uh, uh, this treaty paved the way for other nuclear arms control initiatives. Um, So in that sense, I think partial testament treaty uh, might have helped cap the uh, nuclear arms race, if not really stop, the entire uh, the competition. Um, but now, what we are trying to do here is basically uh, comparing uh, uh, different components of the nuclear weapons enterprise, as well as we are talking about the difference in terms of the uh, scope, uh, reach, and then also. Who's going to be at risk for what? Um, so this um, this is a kind of conundrum that the uh, uh, people back then faced and then uh, we still face today. So the, uh, but uh, I think it is very productive to think about uh, both short-term and long-term, uh, the uh, implications of the partial test treaty and also the redistribution of risks among different different groups of people and the different parts of the world so i think the uh uh if we think about uranium miners of course the partial test treaty did not really help if not uh if any maybe might have increased the demand for uranium for uh, nuclear deterrence so but uh, if you think about the uh um kids growing up drinking milk that contained radioactivity in it, then maybe you know partial dispatch treaty really did reduce uh risk uh to some extent. So
0: well uh Doctor Higuchi, we're really grateful for um, taking you taking the time to discuss your book with us. And I'm and, um, wondering what, what are you currently working on? What's your next project after this um, this book?
2: Well, so I'm now working on a project called uh, History of World War III. <laughs> and then when I said this, many people asked back, are you talking about World War One or World War II? what is the history of World War III? (laughs) And then by World War III, I mean the next World War that is yet to come. And this expectation has been with us ever since that we had World War II. And then I'm very interested in um, basically building upon, my research project, which uh, uh, produced a book, uh, but also I wanna push the scholarship into uh, uh, innovative direction, namely to um, basically flip the uh, usual thing. We, we tend to say that the, uh, we study the past to prepare for the future, And uh, I said, we need to study the future to better understand the past. And then uh, this is called the uh, history of the future, which is a new trend in the field of history. That is, um, we cannot really understand the past without really understanding their aspirations and then uh, imaginations of the future. And then, World War Three is really a powerful, if not deadly, future that has gripped our imaginations for the last eight decades and counting. And then, I I'm I'm taking a look at the uh, how, where this kind of idea World War Three came from, and then how that idea changed over time. And uh, what that change and continuity tell us about hopes and the fears of Americans living uh, in the world after World War II. So the, uh, that's a kind of project I'm very, I'm very excited about telling an um, interesting
0: story about this. Well, that, sound, that sounds really interesting. And thank you again for uh, discussing your book again that's political fallout nuclear weapons testing in the making of the global environmental crisis by dr toshihiro higuchi um and thank you and um we'll we'll join you again in the new books network. thanks
2: thank you so much